When you contribute your fixed income deals to Refinitiv, they'll reach over half a million buy and sell side professionals around the world and be included in our industry-leading league table rankings. To ensure we're capturing your entire deal flow, visit contribute.refinitiv.com forward slash FI sign up or contact our team at contribute at refinitiv.com. Make your deal count. In the autumn of 1962, an English banker went on a business trip to New York. George Bolton was chairman of the Bank of London and South America. And as the chairman of a European bank, regular trips to New York were an essential part of the job. Following the war, the US had become the place for European governments and companies to raise the funds they needed. During his trip, Bolton made a startling discovery. The Kennedy administration was privately putting pressure on US banks to cut off European borrowers. The rumours, if true, would be a major blow to Europe. His discovery created an urgency to find a way for European borrowers to bypass New York and instead fund themselves using the growing piles of what were widely described as stateless dollars, also known as Eurodollars, being built up outside the US. Pretend you're happy when you're blue It isn't very hard to do This is the story of how a small group of visionaries would transform global financial markets forever. It's the story of how a handful of individuals helped London to regain its lost crown as the world's financial capital. It's also the story of how they convinced the relatively unknown Italian motorway operator, Autostrada, to take a gamble on their new idea, the Eurobond, and in the process helped create a market that today is worth around $30 trillion. The traditional city banks, all they wanted to know was what your family name was and, and where you'd been to school. We weren't part of the club, and they sort of slightly looked down and just joked about us, but we were with people who were making progress. I mean, they were way ahead of their time in their marketing and recognising that people didn't necessarily want to get pissed at lunchtime. See, there was celebrations. Harold Mandelson said, this, this is the best thing that's ever happened. I'm Gareth Gore. And this is The Syndicate from IFR. In June 1947, US Secretary of State George Marshall gave a landmark speech at Harvard University. World War II had ended more than two years earlier, but Europe still lay in ruins. After six years of fighting, much of the physical fabric of the continent had been turned to rubble. In Germany and the UK, the worst affected countries, about a third of all homes had been destroyed. Factories, roads, railways and bridges had been smashed to pieces. A very serious situation is rapidly developing, which bodes no good for the world. Europe's requirements for the next three or four years of farm, food and other essential products are so much greater than her present ability to pay that she must have substantial additional help or face economic, social, and political deterioration of a very grave character. Our policy is directed not against any country or doctrine, but against hunger, poverty, desperation, and chaos. Without the money to rebuild, Europe faced an economic, humanitarian, and political disaster. What the Secretary of State proposed was a massive aid program to save the continent. The Marshall Plan, as it became known, would eventually total more than $13 billion, equivalent to about $140 billion today. 
the funds would go towards rebuilding war-torn countries, setting them on a more stable footing after the years of hardship and loss. But that was only part of the story. It quickly became clear that the Marshall Plan wouldn't be enough to fulfil Europe's need for dollars to pay for vital imports. European governments and companies soon began to turn to the US bond market to raise additional dollars. Issuance quickly exploded. Between 1945 and the early 60s, it's estimated that US investors bought more than $6 billion of bonds issued by cash-strapped Europeans. Here's Chris O'Malley, a former bond trader who's written extensively about the period. The problem for Europe after the Second World War was how do we rebuild our economies? We've got massive deficits. We've got hugely damaged infrastructure. We've got to build our roads and our ports and our airports and everything else. So they desperately needed to borrow. Now, where could you borrow? You could borrow in your domestic market. But apart from a few countries, UK, France, Germany, maybe, the domestic bond markets were barely there or in very fragile form. So where do you go? Well, obvious choice was you've got to go to the US market. Why? Because it was in the best health. It was the greatest wealth creating nation. But equally, if not more important, because it was the US dollar. And the dollar now is by far the most dominant currency. And so people started to issue paper, finance themselves in the US domestic market. I think the first issue may have been in 1947, and then they started to build up in the early 50s. Such bond sales quickly became a lucrative source of business for US investment banks, who were paid handsomely to underwrite the deals and find buyers. Initially, that was easy. US investors were happy to lend their money to European countries. But as the market grew and the list of borrowers began to include unfamiliar companies and regional governments, placing the bonds became more difficult. The US investment banks started to look for alternatives, and it soon became clear there was actually a very simple solution. They could sell this European debt to European investors. There were a lot of rich families in places like Switzerland that held much of their wealth in dollars and wanted a decent return. What was more, they knew these oddly named issuers that Americans had never heard of. It was a perfect match. Here's Chris O'Malley again. So what in fact started to happen, there was a lot of flow back into Europe. So we were issuing bonds into the United States, frankly a modest take-up in the United States, but quite a bit of interest by an emerging investor base in Europe. And that was mainly centred around the Swiss banks. A huge amount of the investable funds was effectively flight money after the Second World War, people's savings in suitcases, you know, literally, and they were put in to the Swiss banking system. Now, why did these investors in the Swiss banks want to buy these things? Well, they knew the names. They were European names, but also they were dollars, and they wanted dollar exposure because that was the strongest currency. In fact... Those wealthy families were just one part of a growing pool of dollars that was building up in Europe. Money from the Marshall Plan, together with big new investments from US corporate giants such as General Motors and Heinz, meant there were plenty of dollars sloshing around the continent in the 1950s, and a good chunk of them stayed there. Banks in the region soon started to take advantage by offering clients the opportunity to deposit these euro dollars in their vaults. 
This pool of offshore dollars in Europe was given an added boost after the Hungarian uprising in 1956, when the Soviet Union, fearful of US sanctions, decided to move its vast dollar holdings from New York to London. But not all countries were happy about these huge inflows and outflows of dollars. Remember, this was a time of fixed exchange rates, and some governments sought to clamp down on euro-dollar flows for fear it might cause undue volatility. The UK took a different view. Many in the city saw the euro-dollar market as a great opportunity for London, which had lost its position as the financial capital of the world to New York, but which now had a chance to reassert its standing. George Bolton was one of the biggest advocates, lobbying the Bank of England and Prime Minister Harold Macmillan to take a laissez-faire approach, which they duly did. By 1962, London had grown to become the biggest Eurodollar centre on the planet. So if your hands start a clapping, fingers start a popping, your feet start moving around. George Bolton wasn't the only London banker visiting the States in the autumn of 1962. Sigmund Warburg, who had been born into a wealthy German banking family, was in Washington. Warburg had been an MI6 informer before the war, providing valuable intelligence on his regular meetings with Jolmar Schacht, president of the Reichsbank. Like many Jews, Warburg fled Germany in 1934 for London, where, shortly after the end of the war, he set up his own firm, SG Warburg & Co. But, as a foreign upstart... Warburg lacked the cosy relationships with UK industry that were key to winning mandates. And as a result, he was always on the lookout for new opportunities. The firm quickly made a reputation for itself as being something of a scrappy outsider, willing to upset the establishment. In the late 1950s, he won a vicious bidding war for British aluminium that shocked many in the city but which cemented his reputation as a real force for change. John Knott, who'd later go on to become a government minister and chairman of rival bank Lazard, joined Warburg straight out of university. The traditional banks, like Lazard and Morgan Grenfell and Hambrose, they were friendly enough. I mean, Sigmund Warburg used to send me round to have lunch with these people and find out what they were saying. The atmosphere was completely different. The traditional city banks... All they wanted to know was what your family name was and, and where you'd been to school. I mean, that was all about the sort of city club, really. Whereas Warburg's wasn't interested in any of that. He wasn't an Englishman. He didn't give a damn where anybody... He was very suspicious of the English public school system. He wasn't very keen on accountants. And he certainly wasn't keen on business schools. He thought business schools were extremely a bad way of uh, recruiting a bank. He was completely different from the average city bank. David Potter, who started out in the city in the 1960s at the US firm White Weldon Co., regularly collaborated on deals with Warburgs. He believes the firm's founder was one of a small group of immigrants who shook London out of its sleepy ways. We weren't part of the club, but they sort of slightly looked down and just joked about us. But we were with people who were making progress. It's perfectly true that they thought their clients belonged to them. And they got frightfully upset if a company went to Warburg's or went to us. But, you know, we tried a bit harder. I mean, Warburg's guys there worked incredibly hard. I'm sure you've heard stories about you know, everybody bought a suit 
not with two pairs of trousers, but with two jackets. So they could leave a jacket on the chair in the offices. If Sigmund came round at 10 o'clock at night, he'd think they'd just gone for a coffee. But I recall people sort of joking about Warburgs, but actually in a slightly more envious way. Like, I mean, as you, I'm sure you've heard about the famous fact that Warburgs had two sittings for lunch. They had a sitting at 12.30 and a sitting at 1.30, and they only served beer or cider. Now, the merchant banks just looked down their nose to that, because the merchant banks, lunch started at 12 with a couple of gin and tonics, and finished at 2.30 with a brandy and cigar. So Warburgs could see twice as many clients, and that's what they did. I mean, they were way ahead of their time in their marketing, and recognising that people didn't necessarily want to get pissed at lunchtime. Ever on the lookout for new business, on his trip to the States that autumn, Warburg met some contacts at the World Bank. They shared their latest findings on the size of the eurodollar market, telling him that they estimated it to be as big as $3 billion, much bigger than previously thought. The news galvanised Warburg, who'd already been mulling various ideas about how to tap that pool of stateless dollars for his clients. For a long time, Warburg had also been bothered by the way the Yankee market was structured. How was it that US banks had a stranglehold on issuance when all they were doing was connecting European borrowers with the vast pools of dollars being held at European banks? By the early 1960s, about 75% of all Yankee bonds were owned by Europeans. Bolton and Warburg put out feelers to Lord Cromer, the governor of the Bank of England about whether or not he would be open to dollar bonds being sold in the London market. He replied, noting various practical difficulties, but adding, We are sympathetic to this proposal and will give it what practical support we can. That, together with talk of a US clampdown on European borrowers and the World Bank Eurodollar estimates, was like a starting pistol for the two bankers. The race was on to put together the first Eurobond. And if you sing this melody You'll be pretending just like me Warburg believed he had a head start. His firm had shrewdly built up a strong relationship with the New York investment bank Kuhn Loeb, which was one of the main underwriters in the Yankee bond market. The relationship proved a vital source of information about who the borrowers were and what they needed. Warburg struck up a particularly fruitful relationship with an American banker called Gert Whitman, who was seconded to London. Whitman tipped Warburg off to a string of potential issuers. One candidate was Norway, which had hired Kuhn Loeb to do a deal in New York. But the deal had been pulled because of market conditions. Then there was the European coal and steel community, a precursor to today's European Union which was spending huge amounts building homes and creating jobs for coal and steel workers across the continent. Warburg spent months courting them as the potential first Eurobond issuer. Unfortunately, all that hard work came to nothing. Here's Chris O'Malley again. Whitman came over to sort of join the team and head up the team to see if they could raise this funding. So the people they went to was the European coal and steel community. This was the first supranational after the Second World War. So they were quite keen because they were a big issue of Yankee bonds. But for some reason, it didn't go ahead. Now, whether 
they were worried that they'd upset the US market by doing this avant-garde new thing of raising the bond with dollars in Europe. I don't know. There's a number of different conjectures on why they didn't go ahead. So after a lot of work, Warburg didn't have a borrower. So one of their directors, Ronald Grierson, they were very close connected with Italy. So they went to Guido Carli at the Bank of Italy and said, you know, we're thinking of this idea about raising finance in Europe via the dollar market. Have you got anybody interested? Warburg travelled to Rome to meet with Carly, who was the son of a prominent fascist sociologist. Carly told the banker that he did have a potential borrower in mind. He said that the IRI, the Istituto per la Ricostruzione Industriale, which had been set up by Mussolini in 1933 to drive the transformation of the Italian economy, and which after the war had been tasked with reconstruction, had a steel subsidiary by the name of Finsider that desperately needed funds. Excited to have a new lead, Warburg returned to London, only to have his hopes dashed by Whitman. Whitman had been working hard on the Eurobond idea, and had become convinced that the only way to make it work was if coupon payments were paid out gross, that is, before tax. With potential investors scattered across Europe, the last thing they would want was to pay tax twice, first in the country of the issuer, and then in their own country. After looking through the legal paperwork, Whitman had discovered that Finsider's statutes prohibited the company from paying interest without deducting Italian coupon tax. The team frantically looked for a way around the problem and soon identified another IRI subsidiary, Autostrada per l'Italia, which was in charge of building the country's motorways. The plan was that Autostrada, which could pay interest gross of tax, would raise the money and pass it on to Finsider. It was Whitman that's looking at working on the idea and Whitman believed that we had to have bearer bonds and coupons had to be paid gross. He had a very clear idea because it wasn't going to be good enough. There wasn't a domestic market as such for this bond because it was dollars in Europe. So you had to have lots of investors. So you've got to make it as sort of use of friendly as possible. Now, almost every domestic market in the world, and actually to this day, if you invest in your own domestic market, when you receive the coupon on a bond, you receive it net of the basic rate of tax. So Whitman realised that was a non-starter. It wasn't going to work, so we had to get a mechanism whereby coupons could be paid gross. Io confesso che non ho fatto la guerra on the 14th of January 1963, an agreement was formally signed between S.G. Warburg and IRI. But a lot of work lay ahead. The task of dealing with the details fell to two men. The first, Ian Fraser, was a Scot who had quit university to join the army during the war, seeing action in North Africa and Italy. After that, he resumed his studies and then became a journalist for Reuters, where he became a correspondent in Paris, Berlin and Rome, before quitting to become a banker. The other man was Peter Spira. He'd followed a slightly more conventional route into banking, joining Warburg's in 1957 as a newly trained chartered accountant. 
Peter died in 2019. But here he is speaking about the Autostrada deal at a 50th anniversary dinner organised by the International Capital Markets Association a few years ago. The first question tonight must be, why Autostrada? The answer is that it was never meant to be Autostrada. What happened was that when Sigmund Warburg asked his friend Guido Carrelli, the governor of the Banca d'Italia, to produce an Italian borrower to pioneer this new form of fundraising, Carly suggested the name of Fincida, the Italian steel company. Fortunately, we soon discovered this would not work, as Fincida could not, under its statutes, pay interest gross. This, of course, was an essential feature to attract all those Belgian dentists and others who were the target buyers of the bonds and who were not over-inclined to pay tax on interest received. Instead, Carly put forward the name Autostrada, which could pay interest gross. The two men soon discovered a host of problems they had to grapple with, and it took them six long months to sort them all out. First, there were UK laws that prohibited residents from lending abroad, from buying foreign bonds and from investing in bearer securities, which allowed their owners to remain anonymous. Then, there was stamp duty of 4% on all bearer bonds issued in the UK. There was also the problem of a listing. Most banks couldn't underwrite bonds unless they were listed on a major exchange. Fraser and Spira were extremely creative. To get around UK tax and exchange control rules, they decided to issue the bonds in the jurisdiction of Schiphol Airport in Holland. To avoid stamp duty, they arranged for coupons to be cashed only in Luxembourg and other amenable countries. The bonds would be listed in Luxembourg too. After a lot of hard work, they also convinced the Bank of England to admit the bonds to the official list, effectively creating a backdoor listing. At the same time, Warburgs didn't really have a distribution network of its own to sell the bonds. It was a merchant bank, not a trading house, and needed a partner. It decided to bring in White Weld & Co., a US investment bank that had built a strong position in the secondary market, buying and selling Yankee bonds through its relatively new branch in Zurich. Stanislas Yasukovich was a young bond trader at White Weld's Swiss office at the time. They weren't particularly known at that time for a role in the international capital markets. They had no secondary market activity in London. So they weren't really seen as a player in this new market until uh, the Autostrada issue, which of course then made them more interested in where this market was going. But as at White Weld, we were very close to Warburgs and we were consulted about the secondary market because it was perfectly obvious that these bonds would not actually trade on the London exchange. They were going to trade in this this secondary market. So uh, Sigmund Warburg was in touch with my senior partner, Bob Geniard, at the time, uh, just to make sure that the, the secondary market, which was very much dominated by White Weld, would be sufficient to ensure liquidity of the issue. All this back and forth took time. And meanwhile, Warburg's rivals were working on their own plans to tap this massive pool of stateless dollars sloshing around Europe. Hambrus Bank was also in discussions with Norway about doing a deal. 
but both were pipped to the post by Samuel Montague and co, who in May 1963 placed $20 million of bonds for the Belgian government with a yield of 5%. Some people argue that was the first real Eurobond. Certainly, at the time, it was big news. The Times wrote, As the first non-sterling foreign loan to be organised by the city since the war, it signals a resurgence of London as an international capital market. But the deal was effectively a private placement, and never traded on the open market. For that reason, the Belgium deal is not really considered as being the first ever Eurobond. Or at least that's the spin that Warburg, ever one to slant things to his advantage, put on it. A few weeks later, Warburg finally got his moment. On the 1st of July 1963, S.G. Warburg announced it had placed $15 million of bonds for Autostrada, wholly guaranteed by IRI, with a coupon of 5.5%. Its junior partners on the deal were Bank de Bruxelles, Deutsche Bank and Rotterdamsche Bank. But nobody was in doubt who was really behind the bond. Warburg, Whitman, Fraser and Spira were the ones that had made it happen. Here's Chris O'Malley again on the significance of the deal. The world in those days was only made up of domestic bond markets. So there were two ways anybody could finance themselves. Finance yourself in your domestic market or finance yourself in someone else's domestic market. And the importance of order strata is that changed all of that because it suddenly broke the barriers between the countries. You'll find the love you can share when you can call your While of course the deal was big news, nobody was really prepared for what was to come next. Now, as we heard earlier, George Bolton had heard about how the Kennedy administration was putting pressure on US banks to stop lending to Europeans. Further measures were expected to address the current account deficit. But when they were announced in 1963, a fortnight after the Autostrada deal, it shocked the market. Here's President John F. Kennedy the day before the measures were formally unveiled. We are sending tomorrow a balance of payments message, which will have a good many of our suggestions. Quite obviously, the dollar is an international currency and has served us well and served the West well. And with the sterling has been the basis for a good deal of international liquidity. I have every confidence it can continue to be. And I think we can still continue on the gold standard. I think if the program we're recommending tomorrow is enacted, it will make a substantial difference to our balance of payments. What Kennedy proposed dropped a bombshell on the Yankee market. The centrepiece of his proposals to address the current account deficit was something called the Interest Equalisation Tax, which effectively imposed a 15% tax on the purchase by Americans of foreign securities. With that one measure, the Kennedy administration effectively killed the New York foreign bond market and pushed issuance to the new Eurobond market in London. There is a story that, as the news came through, the chairman of Morgan Guarantee in New York, Henry Alexander, gathered together some senior colleagues and shared his fears with them. This is a day you will remember forever, he said. It will change the face of American banking and force all the business off to London. It will take years to get rid of this legislation. He was right. The cost of the Vietnam War would make the deficit problem worse. IET would remain until 1974. Stanislas Yasukovich, the young bond trader at White Weld, was on a business trip in New York when he heard the news. He remembers the reaction of one of the senior partners there. See, there was celebrations. 
Harold Mandelson said, this this is the best thing that's ever happened because it was crystal clear that that had closed the U.S. market. And in fact, a number of prominent Wall Streeters complained bitterly. There were articles in the Wall Street Journal saying that this was a, a devastating blow to the American financial markets, that this was going to stop inward flow of funds and therefore was a stupid move. So it was widely criticized in Wall Street. But of course, it was for White Weld a great bonus because we hadn't actually been that prominent in the foreign dollar bond issuance business. So when the IET closed the New York market and suddenly it was all going to switch to Europe and specifically to London, we saw ourselves as much better placed than a lot of our competitors. And we then began to exploit our presence, our strong position in the secondary market to secure mandates to manage issues. The rest is, of course, history. Very quickly, the Eurobond market became fully established. After a handful of deals in 1963, in 1964, there were over 40 separate issues from the likes of Austria, the Norges Kommunalbank, the Copenhagen Telephone Company, and even the Japanese conglomerate Itochu, raising almost $700 million between them. Today, of course, issuance is in the trillions, with deals from every corner of the globe. But every deal today has the likes of George Bolton, Sigmund Warburg, Gert Whitman, Ian Fraser, Peter Spearer, and all those other pioneers from the early 60s to thank. Thank you for listening. This episode of The Syndicate was researched, written, and presented by me, Gareth Gore. The editor was Matthew Davis. This has been a fresher production for IFR. When you contribute your fixed income deals to Refinitiv, they'll reach over half a million buy and sell side professionals around the world and be included in our industry-leading league table rankings. To ensure we're capturing your entire deal flow, visit contribute.refinitiv.com forward slash FI sign up or contact our team at contribute at refinitiv.com. Make your deal count.